And welcome Rebecca Parkhurst as she reads our scripture for the day. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and mother. Okay, so how many of you have ever heard this terrifying phrase? Now you've done it! You ever heard that? Does that bring like warm, gooey feelings to you? You know, that's one of those phrases that uh, terrifies you, doesn't it? It ends up with a sinking feeling. We usually hear that phrase when? We usually hear it when we've irrecoverably broken something, right? I remember somebody saying, hearing that phrase when they drove their car with too little oil in it, and it went boom. And many of us have probably heard that when we've gone through bad relationship experiences, whether it was divorce or a breakup or just a failure of a friendship. Now you've done it. Have you ever experienced that? Today, as we continue looking at Jesus, the real Jesus, as we've been studying, and we're in this uh, little short series within that called Provocative and Practical, we're going to look at one of the most provocative statements Jesus makes. It's a statement that I think for everyone who's ever heard it, Uh, Maybe even if you've been following Christ for many years and you still hear it, it brings a tinge of nervousness. It brings a tinge of fear almost to your life. And it's this thing that we referred to earlier where Jesus says, anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, that sin is basically what he's saying is unpardonable. It cannot be forgiven. Now you've gone too far. At what point, at what point am I not forgivable? Is what that question brings up. Now, I promise we're going to deal with that towards the end, right at the very end. But in order to get there, we're going to look at a number of other things. And this message is really interesting going through this passage because it all leads to the discussion of what we're going to conclude with. But it it actually is going to have a number of different parts in it where we're going to look at first uh, the three main ideas that are recorded in the Bible of who people thought Jesus was at that time. We're going to add to that an idea uh, that we today add to that of who we think Jesus is and how we relate to him in the context leading up to this passage. And so as we go at this, some of you are going to maybe hear some arguments and some ideas about who Jesus is and what the Bible is and uh, and what our faith is all about that you've never heard. Some of you are going to hear uh, stuff that maybe uh, you've had friends who have made objections to you, and, and, and this is going to be helpful for you to understand how to not argue, but how to reason talk about some things. But there were basically, in Jesus' day, 
three views as recorded in the Bible and as recorded even in other historical documents as to who Jesus is. The first one we find in verse 21. And it's Jesus' family holding this idea. The fact that Jesus is crazy. He's insane. He's out of his mind. And this is Mary, his mother, who went through all of the miracles surrounding his birth, coming with his brothers and saying, Jesus is insane. The second view is put forward in verse 22 by the religious leaders, and that is simply this, that he is evil. More specifically, that uh, in the text that says he is the prince of demons, he is the overseeing all of the evil hosts of heaven and earth, and that he's doing all of his power by that. And third, we're going to look at Jesus' own words about who he is, and at the end we'll start putting what does that make, why does that make a difference in our life. Um, so let's look at this. The, the three biblical theories, simply this. He's crazy, he's evil, or he is who he says he is. And then we'll add a fourth modern one here as we go through. Now, now think about these theories for a minute. Uh, we've already looked at chapters 1 through 3 of Mark as we've been going through the series. And in that time, we've seen Jesus repeatedly claim to be God. He uses the term Son of Man, which is a clear reference to Old Testament biblical teaching about God himself coming someday. He's claimed that he is the author of the Sabbath, which basically means he's saying that he was around at creation. He was always existent. He's always been around. He's claimed that he's the only, he, he can forgive sins, and we know that only God can forgive sins, and he's claimed that all sins are against him ultimately. He's made all these outrageous claims about being God. And think about it for a second. What would happen if you had somebody here today walking around making those same claims consistently, offhandedly saying, I'm God. I've always existed. I've always been here. You know what? You would think the same thing my friend Gary Hebden in Spokane thought. One evening he was teaching a Bible study at his church, and it was one of these Bible studies that you usually didn't come to it if you were a visitor unless you visited Sunday morning. And this new person walks in, walks up to the front, sits down, and Gary goes up to him and greets him. And a couple of you heard me share this story before, but many of you haven't. He goes up and greets the guy. He says, hi, I'm Gary. What's your name? And he says, my name is Jesus Christ. Great, we got Jesus Christ in church. That's a good thing, right? Gary is just this joker, and he's got some staff and some friends and some people in the church who just love to pull pranks on him. So he goes, okay, so who puts you up to this? And he goes, no, my name is really Jesus Christ. And he pulls out his Washington Strait Diver's license and proves his name is Jesus Christ. What do you do with that? So Jerry, Gary you just said, well, welcome, Jesus. Glad you came to church. He teaches his Bible study all throughout the Bible study. This guy's inching closer to the lady next to him, and by the end of the service, he's got his arm around the married lady next to him. And Gary has to do something he never thought he would ever have to do in his whole life. He has to rebuke Jesus Christ himself. Did you ever think you would do that in life? Now, that I mean, that's funny. That's crazy, right? But it makes the point of how easy it would be for people in Jesus' day to react to him the same way. The Bible only has three Three working theories of who Jesus is. He's crazy, he's evil, or he's Lord of all, and he's who he says he is. Now, I want to take a little bit of time here and go through at least, there are at least three historical reasons why it's really hard to believe that Jesus is either crazy 
or evil. And we're just going to go through them. One of them I alluded to a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to repeat everything. I'm just going to give just enough to get back into it and go just a little bit deeper with them. That's the first one. The first reason is that if you study, if you do an honest study of history, an honest study of religions in history, there is no other religion on earth that has been founded by someone who claimed to be God himself that has lasted any length of time other than Christianity. Now, you've got people who've claimed to be divine, and they've got their little following, and it lasts about 20 years until everybody drinks purple Kool-Aid and dies. I mean, you've got those kinds of things all throughout history that happen. But you've got nobody who's ever claimed it, and it's lasted and gotten off the ground. And now you need to think about that even more clearly. If you put that that whole statement of what Jesus did, and that whole concept of what Jesus did, in the cultural context of the day, the Jews were not in their religious thinking like everybody else was. The Eastern religion people say that there's divine in everything. It's in the wood, it's in me, it's in all of us. And they have that idea, and that's different. They're not also, they're not either like the Western culture of, in their approach to, 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 um, like the Greeks, in their approach to religion either, where you've got all these gods who are fighting each other, and they come to earth every now and appear, and again and appear to have a good time and, and do what they want to do, and it's usually a little bit of capriciousness going on, all that kind of stuff. And no, the Jews, claimed that there was one God, believed that there is one God who created all that exists. And this God is so above and beyond, so perfect, so holy, so amazing, that they wouldn't even say his name or write his name out fully. It is, it is preposterous to believe that somebody coming to the Jewish nation claiming to be divine would be accepted. Now, if you study Jewish history, there were other people in Jewish history before Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah, who claimed to be the deliverer of the nation, the one who was going to set up the new throne of David, all that kind of stuff. But none of them claimed to be divine. For them to accept that, it's amazing. So you have to ask yourself the question, what kind of person must Jesus have been? What kind of life must Jesus have lived in order to break through those barriers among the Jewish culture to have tens of thousands of people follow him. Not just the peasants, but even many religious leaders chose to follow him. If we think someone crazy or evil could do that, I'd, I'd love to see a mathematician do the math on that because I think the probability of that would be a number that somebody else would have to explain to me because it's too large for me to count. Here's what... Tim Keller, if I'm going to paraphrase him, says about this. He says, what, what they saw that broke through that barrier in the Jewish nation was the staggering, the staggering, audacious, egocentric claims that Jesus made about power and divinity set alongside the staggering, non-egocentric, selfless living of his life in his kind concern for the poor and the hurting and in his bafflingly kind and patient treatment of even those who betrayed him and sought his downfall. How do you argue against that and say that he's crazy or say that he's evil when you look at those things? It's just hard. But we in highly educated America have come up with a fourth modern day theory because we're advanced and we're illuminated. And the theory is this. The theory is that we cannot trust, really trust the New Testament Gospels, that Jesus never claimed these, made these claims, that he never did all of the preposterous miracles that he did, that those were just legends 
created about him and written about him, and that Jesus himself was just really only this amazing teacher of love and peace. And that's the more popular view that you will experience today in conversations in America. You'll see it on the TV. You'll see it in PBS and History Channel specials about who Jesus supposedly is and the way they look at it. And, And even then, we can understand that theory, can't we? I mean, like I said, it's hard to argue that Jesus is crazy because he's such a brilliant teacher. He's one of the most amazing teachers in all of history. It's hard to argue that he's evil because of the selflessness of his life and his teaching that backs that up. But in order to avoid having to accept the third biblical position that that Jesus is Lord and he is who he says he is, we've come up with this revisionist history and another argument. It's popularized in the Da Vinci Code. It's popularized in all all the documentaries that we see. And so theory four is simply this. We declare the Gospels as legends and we just accept that Jesus is a nice teacher of love and peace. But there's at least three, and I don't know, we're getting, getting tired of three. At least it's not just three points, it's like six or eight, right? So we're getting tired. Of, but there are at least three reasons why that as well doesn't hold water, why the whole accusation of the Bible being a legend, of the eyewitness accounts, the Gospels being legend, doesn't hold water. Let me summarize them and we'll go through them quickly one at a time. First reason is the New Testament Gospels are written too early to be legends. The second is the content is too counterproductive to be legends. And the third is that the genre of the writing is too um, detailed for them to be legends. Let's look at them one at a time. First, legends take time to develop. Don't they? I mean, think about it. Don't all the eyewitnesses, or at least all of them, don't most of the eyewitnesses at least have to die before you establish a legend? Don't you have to have most of them dead so that you have just a few corrupt ones who either want to want to establish a legend or, or they're all old enough to be senile so they can't argue against it and tell you you're wrong? And yet, the New Testament, if we look at it, Paul starts writing letters about Jesus claiming that he is God, backing up what we see in the eyewitness accounts only 15 years after Jesus' res- death and resurrection. There's tens of thousands of eyewitnesses who are reading these letters because you have to understand these letters were sent to, it says the church at Corinth, but the church at Corinth was like the church at Columbus it was, or, or the church of central Ohio. That's really what it was. They were being circulated widely. And not only were they being circulated widely in that region, but these letters were being copied and sent all over the Roman Empire. There were tens of thousands of people reading these letters who could have said, no, he never said that. He didn't say that at all. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says this. At the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians letter, there are 500 people, he says, who saw Jesus alive after the resurrection. And he says most of them are still alive today. How do you establish a legend? How do you establish that fact in a way that penetrates culture widely when there are that many eyewitnesses still alive? Even the eyewitness accounts like Mark that we're studying were still written when there were thousands of eyewitnesses still alive. You can't establish a legend that early. And it's really interesting because if you if you really go back and do an honest study of history, the people who are proposing this fourth legend theory the letters and stuff that they're basing their arguments on were actually written long after all the eyewitnesses were dead. 
And they're arguing that these earlier works are legends and that these are more credible. It, it just doesn't make sense. Second, okay, sorry. Second, the content of the Gospels is too counterproductive to have been an attempt to fabricate legends. Okay, let's, let's think about this one. So even in our text today, it says Jesus' family was coming to what? To forcibly take him. Now, the easiest way to explain what that word and the intensity of that word in the original Greek means, it's the same thing as if you were and your whole family was going to do an intervention to commit a member of your family because they were out of control, insane, needed to have their rights taken away and be put away to heal or be taken care of. That's the intensity. And you start thinking about this in a family-oriented culture, Why would they share this, especially given the fact that James, Jesus' brother, later becomes the head of the Jerusalem church? Why would they be be sharing this information, this negative information about him? And, And think even further about the rest of the disciples. They talk about James and John having temper problems and anger problems. They talk about Peter being impulsive and denying. And they talk about so many flaws in all the rest of the leaders of this early church. If you're going to establish legend... If you're going to establish the credibility of the leaders of this legend, you don't tell all their flaws. You don't make them look bad. It's, it's preposterous to argue that they could do that and establish the leadership of these men in that culture. And you can even go one step further in this, in this piece of the argument too. In that day, in the Roman, Greek, and Jewish culture, unfortunately, women were treated in a way that their testimony was not considered admissible in court. It was not valid. And yet, if you look at the eyewitness accounts that we're reading, and we look a little bit further towards especially like the resurrection accounts that we celebrated last week, you see women being the first eyewitnesses of almost everything going on in those circumstances. If you were going to establish a legend that was going to penetrate any of those cultures of the day, you would not have women as your first eyewitnesses. It would be counterproductive to what you wanted to accomplish. Now, the good news, the good news for all of us is that that speaks a lot about how intentional Jesus was, how intentional God was in raising women up in that era, in that culture that was so oppressive. Why would these things be included in the text? Simply this. They're actually eyewitness accounts. They're people's memories their people's diaries that they're sharing. Third, the Gospels involve way too much detail. Now, so you read the Gospels and you see these, these little details about, you know, they were walking along a road or, or they were doing this or that and there's all these little details. There's one story where Jesus is in a storm in a boat and it just talks about the fact that Jesus was laying on this cushion. Why do they mention the cushion? Why do you put that detail in there? It, it, it doesn't add to the story. It doesn't make any sense. It, it just doesn't work. And we're used to that kind of detail, and so we don't really pay attention to this stuff when we're reading the Gospels because we're used to the modern novel developed a couple hundred years ago that includes a lot of details like that. 
But C.S. Lewis, who we all know as the, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia and we all know as a Christian apologist, what, what you may not remember is that C.S. Lewis was one of the leading professors at Oxford and Cambridge on medieval and ancient literature. That's what he did for his entire life was study medieval and ancient literature and teach it at the most prestigious colleges in the world. And he writes this. He says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all of my life. I know what they're like. None of them, he says, are like the Gospels. Of the Gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is historical reasoning, uh, reporting, uh, thus explaining the level of detail, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or, and without successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of the modern novelist realistic narrative 2,000 years ahead of time. The reader who does not know this has simply not read, C.S. Lewis says. Why the detail? Because it's eyewitness memory. Isn't it true that when you have a powerful experience in life, or when you know somebody who's had a powerful experience in life, maybe you've sat down with somebody, a friend, or a parent, or a, or, 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 or a sibling, whatever, and they've just had this powerful experience in your life, and you ask them to tell about it, and you've got 10 minutes, and you want it to be done in 10 minutes, and they're still talking an hour later, going into detail that you're going, do I really care about this? Anybody else had that experience? Nobody? Okay, come on, come on. I know you've had that experience. Why has that happened? It's because powerful, true experiences in our lives have lots of memory attached to it. We vividly remember everything of those moments. It's the whole, do you know where you were when JFK was shot? Sorry, when Ronald Reagan was shot. Sorry, when Columbine was done. Let's get back up to the age where we can remember, okay? You know, it's that sole same thing. It's, it's this kind of detail memory is a hallmark of a memorable, powerful experience that actually happened. And that's what we're seeing in the gospel accounts. Jesus proceeds in verses 20 through 27 then to transition to tell us about who he really is in his own words, speaking to us in parables. And in this parable, Jesus is, again, returning to the kingdom mindset that's been a theme in Mark. And he likens the kingdom to a world dominated by a strong man. And he simply says this, a general who's leading his military doesn't win his battle by, attack, by attacking his own right flank. Argument done. I mean, it's, it's silly to think that he's casting out demons, he's doing the work of healing by being evil. It's just silly. And then he likens the battle to a castle with all sorts of prisoners in it referring to us, referring to this world that is bound up in, the, in, in evil and imperfection. And he says this, he says, I've come to bind the strong man. Jesus is saying something profound here that takes another shot for us at the difference between religion and relationship with God. You see, religion believes that education is what life is all about. And over the past few weeks, we've made the statement that even irreligious people are, are typically controlled by a religious paradigm. We see it in the UN, we see it in the politics, we see it all around us, that education will solve all the problems in the world, right? It's everywhere. And yet Jesus is going beyond that for us and saying something different. But we still sometimes approach our faith like education. 
we approach it and say, ah, if we don't come to church and hear something new, we feel like we aren't growing. If we don't get all of our theology and all of our reasoning figured out, then we're lacking. Religion, therefore, looks primarily to a teacher, which goes right along with the modern fourth view that Jesus is just a great teacher and all the other stuff is a bunch of legend. But Jesus is saying to us, we need something so much more. It's not that education is unimportant, but we need something so much more. We need someone, he's portraying himself as this warrior who fights for us. Have you ever experienced someone fighting for you, cheering for you? Have you you ever experienced the difference between somebody saying, I love you and walking on, and somebody saying, I love you in a moment and touching touching you and just staying with you, experiencing them? Have you ever experienced the difference between somebody saying, yeah, I forgive you, and somebody demonstrating through their actions and their words and your experience of them that you really are forgiven? Jesus is basically saying, do you think that all the world's brokenness, do you think that your brokenness is going to be simply solved by a teacher, by education, by wise principles, by just a little bit better moral thinking? Absolutely not. It takes more. It takes the experience of relationship. That's the reason why we're attempting on a regular basis to, in these settings, lead you in experiential activities. We'll close a service or we'll do something and we'll ask you to close your mind and ask you to visualize something or pray or, or do something because it's more than just education. It's an experience of God. That's the reason we do the living the quest after the message, not with ideas necessarily just to educate yourself more, but, but devotional things you can do throughout the week to experience the truth of God's presence in what we talked about. This last week, for instance, what we asked you to do in the, in the Living the Quest after the message was to think about your story of where God's interacted with you and how he's impacted you just so that you would bring to mind the ways that God has been active and real and alive to you. More than just thoughts, more than just education, more than just principles, personal. It's moving beyond listening on Sundays and that's the reason we encourage you to turn to one another or to come down and get prayer because it's more than just listening and education. It's providing an opportunity for you to experience through others praying for you, through God working through others and Him by His Spirit coming and actually touching you in the moment. It's the experience of Him fighting for you, of loving you, of forgiving you, of meeting you where you're at on that Sunday morning. It's the reason why we encourage you to practice spiritual habits or to to practice Practice the Sabbath ideas where you make room to experience God by seeking Him. It's the reason why in small groups we ask you to go beyond just list prayer. Taking everybody's prayer requests and throwing them in the middle and going through lists. That's fine, that's good, but, but going beyond that to listening prayer where you just spend some time asking God, would you speak through me to bless this other person or would you meet me right now? by your presence and speak to me, listening for him to experience his presence. You know, I know, I know it's intimidating. It's intimidating for all of us. I don't care how long you've been a, in, in, a follower of Christ or, or how short the time is or if you haven't been. It's intimidating for everybody to think about the fact that God would speak to me for someone else. That thought is just one of those thoughts that just blows your mind and it's intimidating. And yet... It's true. God wants to be that real to us. He wants to show himself alive in your life, 
by both speaking to you through others, speaking to you for yourself, and speaking to you for others. At the core of transformation, at the core of relationship, not religion, it is not religion, at the core of transformation is not education and wisdom alone, but it's the experience of God Himself. In fact, have you ever, have you ever said this about a significant mentor? If you were to ask me about the significant people who impacted my life, I would tell you, and I'll bet many of you would say the same thing about the mentors in your life. I don't remember a lot of the things they taught me. What I remember is the experience of them believing in me, the experience of them encouraging me, the experience of them fighting for me to open doors for me, Those are the things that impact us about mentors, right? Those are the things that change your life. It's not so much the education. I could, I could have gotten the education from them in a book or from, for, or from a a dozen people, but the reason they impacted my life is because of my experience of them and their experience of me interacting. And this is what Jesus is trying to lead us to when we go beyond religion to relationship for us to experience him in a way that changes us. So the question is, where are you in your faith pursuit? Is your faith pursuit primarily about knowledge and education right now? Moral principles? Learning the right things? Or are you pursuing in your faith to be impacted by the person of God, by the experience of God in your life through your communion with him, and through moments with others who you do life together with as friends with faith, praying for one another and experiencing his presence through each other. You see, Jesus is presenting himself not as a great teacher, but as a great liberator, a great warrior, a great friend. And we could, we could go into a whole bunch of connections between what Jesus is doing in this passage in the Old Testament, but let's just, let's just summarize some of the Old Testament prophecy in these couple short statements here. That Jesus has come to bind the strong man. He's come to defeat the evil. He's come to crush the serpent's head. He's come to war against sin and destruction. But Lamentations 2, one of the prophets, uh, uh, Jeremiah wrote it, brings up this problematic question that we deal with. How does God destroy evil in our lives when we're complicit in it and still save us? You see, Jesus comes to destroy evil. And Lamentations 2 puts this in a picture form, talking about the people of Israel saying, God's bow, because they are complicit in evil, God's bow is pointed towards them. And yet he's going to save them. So how does God save us when we're complicit in the evil? How does he destroy evil without destroying us? You know, Jesus says, I bind the strong man in our text that we look at today. He's the one, he's setting himself up the one to, to bind the strong man. And that, even in and of itself, that's another audacious claim that Jesus is making, that, that he's going to be fulfilling all this Old Testament prophecy. And, and see, we don't understand that, but the Jewish people, even the disciples around him, would have understood the Old Testament background to him making that claim. And they would have gone, wow, Jesus, just keep laying on the audacious claims about how you're going to be all that to everybody, right? And And it's just Jesus saying, I'm the solution. I'm the solution to the question of how God destroys evil 
and still saves us when we're complicit in evil. You see, in fact, even the entire book of Mark is about that. We see Jesus fighting against evil everywhere through his teaching, through his healing, through exorcism, through signs and wonders. And yet, and yet, can you imagine, can you imagine when the disciples saw Jesus himself bound and their memory of him saying, I'm the one who's going to bind the strong man to defeat evil? Can you imagine the depth of confusion, the depth of despair that they must have felt that Passion Week as Jesus was going to the cross and Him being bound. You see, Jesus could have taken up a sword and destroyed evil, but He would have either destroyed all but a few people or He would have destroyed all of us. And yet the amazingness of Jesus' victory and His defeat of evil and the ability to save us is found in the fact that He Himself was bound. He Himself was plundered. He Himself was taken captive by our sin. We see the justice of God on the cross being expressed toward and absorbed by God Himself. And that gives us a picture of ultimate strength, of perfect strength. He became weak so that he could destroy evil without destroying us. The strength to be weak, the strength to forgive, to be willing to suffer, to be willing to die as Christ did, has completely redefined what it means to defeat evil. If your enemy is hungry, you feed them. If they're unclothed, you clothe them. If they're in need, you serve them and bless them. If they rebuke you, you show kindness back to them. And by so doing, we live in the power of God. Because the Bible says it's kindness now that leads people to repentance. I want you to practically think about that and what difference it makes in your life by taking a moment to think of the person who greatly wronged you. Think of a person who greatly abused you, wronged you, did an injustice to you, hurt you. Let that person come to mind. When that comes back to you, what do you want to do with it? When you get stuck in those thoughts driving down the road to work, what do you want to do with that? Do you want to get back at them? Because getting back at them, the Bible teaches, and we'll put a couple verses in after the message this week, and if you want to get that, sign up for the city. It'll be published there. When you want to get back at people, It just simply spreads the hurt. It spreads the evil. It just becomes a cancer that keeps keeps growing. And you see, Jesus on the cross demonstrated so much amazing stuff to us. We we alluded to it on the on the Good Friday service when we looked at the last seven phrases of Jesus. Jesus on the cross saying, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What? What? Can you imagine? The guy's just been beaten to a pulp. He's been humiliated, stripped naked, spat upon. They just dropped him, dropped his cross into a hole, dislocated his shoulders. He can hardly breathe. And his first words out of his mouth, his first strong words, Strong words out of his mouth. Our Father, forgive them. They weren't even asking for it. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Jesus goes on even and expresses his love even more in the third statement when he's sitting on the cross in utter agony and he has the presence, the selflessness of mind in his agony to still love profoundly by looking at his mother and knowing that she has a need and he addresses her and her need from the cross. And Jesus is that intentional about coming to us as well. And he's inviting us to find that same strength as we go to others as well. To find a way to follow Jesus in finding a way to destroy evil while saving those around us. You see, when you truly, deeply understand the gospel, when you leave religion behind, you begin to see the fact that I am no better than anybody else. I am so broken. I am so sinful. And God loves me so much. And it's only in that weakness that we find the strength to even begin to approach the kind of love that God shows us and that we all long for. But some of you might say, but wait, I've been hurt so bad. I don't want to forgive. I want justice. I want right things to happen. I want to be redeemed in this. And I'm telling you, that's foolish. That's foolish. If you don't forgive first and you just pursue justice, What's going to happen is one of two things. You're either going to try to confront people out of the hurt and the anger and the desire for justice, and you're probably not going to do it because most of us are too afraid of conflict. And we're just going to keep it inside, and we're going to see them, we're going to get ulcers, and we're going to have all sorts of other stuff. We're not going to do it. Or we're going to go after people with a vengeance, and we're not going to solve anything. We're just going to make things worse and worse and worse. See, only when we see that Jesus had to die for you and that he died for you gladly do you find the strength inside to accept the forgiveness and give the forgiveness that makes us all strong you see then you can confront as needed and you'll see as you seek justice in that spirit where you where you're seeking it from this forgiven standpoint that you're able to defeat evil around you you know if we're a religious person a good person will never defeat evil. Because when evil happens uh, and we're religious, we're, we're going to go, why God? How dare God let that happen? How dare they insult the righteousness and justice of God? And the, uh, How dare they defile that? I'm a good person. And we get further into the bonds of evil when we have that attitude. Only the grace and forgiveness of God can defeat evil in your life and in the lives of those around you. So let me ask again, who's the most difficult person in your life to forgive? Maybe you've forgiven them, but who's the most difficult person? They just keep coming back up, and it's hard. It's really hard to stay in that place of forgiveness. I want you to just just take a moment and pray. I want you to pray with me. I want you to interact with this and ask God to come to you in this moment. And I'll start and I'll give you a couple minutes of silence or a few seconds of silence. Lord, you're amazing in the way that you, uh, you cut through all the questions, all the arguments. And Lord, you love us so much. Lord, first of all, I ask that you would come to each and every one here and that you would make that sense of your presence known 
for your love for each one. And Lord, I pray that as the, as the, the face of the person or the words of the person that they struggle to forgive or the actions of the person that they're struggling to forgive come to mind, Lord, I pray that your spirit would touch them in that place. Each one of us, Lord. You'd help us to follow you in destroying the works of evil by kindness, by thoughtfulness even in the midst of our pain, by forgiveness even when it's not asked for. Lord, that we would be free and we would be strong. So religion is Jesus as a teacher. And religion says, because I follow the teaching, Jesus has to bless me. The gospel is Jesus as a savior. He's one who comes to us. He's one who fights for us. He's one who, when we surrender in relationship to him, he saves us and he blesses us by his grace. And he brings kindness to us, even in the most difficult moments of our lives, of his life. He's thinking of us. Now, as promised, the freak-out phrase. The text goes on to say, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin, an unpardonable sin, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What constitutes this unpardonable sin? We've all probably heard teachings about it. Many of us have. Maybe not all of us, and all of us have probably had fears about that. And we've even heard, we've even heard the statements like, uh, "If you're worried about it, then you haven't committed it, so don't worry." Right? We've all heard that. A lot of us have heard that. I'm not sure any of that stuff is true. Let's think about this from the context. The Bible talks about it's a blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit's role in our life? What is the Holy Spirit's role in our life? Isn't the Holy Spirit's role as defined in Scripture to simply show us who Jesus is? And it amplifies that role in different ways. It talks about the Holy Spirit being the, being the, the, the teacher who leads us into all truth, being the counselor who comforts us, being the one who convicts us, not condemns us, the one who convicts us of right and wrong. And it talks about the one, him being the one who empowers us to live and heal and grow and bring goodness in our life and life to others in meaning to our life. But, but essentially, if you distill all those descriptions of the Holy Spirit in the Bible down to a short phrase, you could essentially say that it's the Holy Spirit's role to lead you to Jesus. Now, there's lots of wrong ideas about what the impardonable sin here is, but here's what I believe it is. And I think there's a really, really strong biblical case for this. Jesus offers, with simple terms of complete surrender to his leadership in our life, he offers forgiveness under those terms, complete surrender. The Holy Spirit's job is to pursue us and lead you to accept that and live in it. So the unpardonable sin is simply this. If you refuse to respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit to repent and accept the forgiveness and lordship of Jesus, then you cannot be forgiven. Tim Keller puts it this way. God can forgive every sin, but he can't forgive any sin at all if we are unwilling to see our need 
for forgiveness and allow Jesus to go deeply into our hearts. If we live with a hard heart and an unwillingness to repent and follow Jesus, we cannot be forgiven simply because we hold God off and don't receive the forgiveness that he's freely offering. Now, you've got to understand, I mean, when we, when we choose to follow Christ, it doesn't mean we're perfect and we can continue to go on sinning. And the Bible talks about two things that we're justified before God when we accept his forgiveness and his lordship. And it also talks about that even though we're not sanctified, which is this term that means, that just admits what we all know, we're, we're not perfect. We're not, everything's not fixed the minute we accept that. We know that. There's this process of sanctification, which is growing into what God already gives us as a gift. So it, it, it's, not, it's not that we have to be perfect. It's not that we always have to know everything to repent for. But when we've... It, it's basically saying there's one big choice. There's one big choice that all of us have to make in life. And that choice is, are we going to follow Jesus as Lord and accept His forgiveness? Or are we not? When we make that choice, there's no worries about the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is all about our ability to make that choice or not. Some of you here are on a journey and you're trying to pursue God. And some of you have been pursuing your faith through education, trying to get all the principles done, trying to get all the right thoughts. God is here to be personal to you to make himself personal to you, to be that mentor, to be that person. Some of you have chosen, not made that choice yet, to repent and declare him the Lord of your life. He's inviting you to do that today. Simple and pure. To learn to live in the brokenness of humility, saying, I don't have it all figured out, and I can be honest about that, and I'm okay because God's forgiven me. And I'm looking to Him as my Lord. I'm not trying to prove myself anymore. Would you do that today? Would all of you just pray with me? Uh, And if you have not made a decision to follow Christ, would you just pray this under your breath or out loud, however you're comfortable? Lord, we thank You that You are so amazingly good. That You solve for us this problem of how we can be right with you even while we're still so broken. So if you're ready to make a decision to follow Christ today, just pray with me now. Lord, would you come to me now and I declare you my Lord. I humble myself before you. I confess my utter brokenness and inability and my sin. And thank you for forgiving me. Lord, I commit to follow you and ask that your spirit would help me in that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here and you prayed that prayer, would you talk to a friend or talk to me? And if you're here and and you're one that has just really been struggling with some of that forgiveness stuff this last week, I want to I want to invite you to not leave without giving your giving yourself an opportunity to experience God coming to you through prayer. Would you turn to a friend or would you come down to one of the people who'll be your down front here 
and say, would you just please pray for me? You don't have to, you don't have to say the whole details. Just say, would you please pray for me? And then allow God through his presence to come make a difference in your life. God bless. Have a great week.